the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing from afar. Today we're going to talk with Jim Phillips. He's a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs. We'll talk about the president's announcement yesterday about the new Afghan um, strategy uh, and how the United States will engage and to what degree and so on. He'll join us uh, later this hour. We're also going to talk with Ron Moore. He's a senior pastor and author. His latest book, Worn Out by Obedience, Recovering from Spiritual Fatigue. Well, as I mentioned, the president uh, said that we cannot remain a force for peace in the world if we are not at peace with each other. Uh, Before he laid out his strategy, the president delivered a message to all Americans about unification, healing and remaining one nation under God. He said the young men and women who we send to fight our wars abroad deserve to return to a country that is not at war with itself at home. We cannot remain a force of peace in the world if we are not at peace with each other. The president said that this was um, uh, an opportunity uh, in the in the light of the the nation's longest war for the the, uh, country here at home to consider uh, it's uh, establishing peace with itself. Well, this was uh, another attempt by the president to put the uh, Charlottesville controversy behind him, although I doubt that others will let that happen. For more than a week, uh, the media outlets and Trump's many critics have blasted him for appearing to equate white supremacists and neo-Nazis with anti-racist protesters. Uh, he was making a distinction between the actions during the uh, uh, during the protest, some of whom are uh, are violent, the president said last Tuesday. Well, on Monday night, he hailed American patriots, members of the U.S. military who fight for our freedom. Among other things, he said, by following the, hero- the heroic example of those who fought to preserve our republic, we can find the inspiration our country needs to unify, to heal and to remain one nation under God. The men and women of our un- of our military operate as one team with one shared mission and one shared sense of purpose. They transcend every line of race, ethnicity, creed, and color to serve together and sacrifice together in absolutely perfect cohesion. That is because all service members are brothers and sisters. They're all part of the same family. It's called the American family. They take the same oath, fight the same flag, or rather for the same flag. We're fighting the flag here at home and live according to the same law. They are bound together by common purpose, mutual trust, selfless devotion to our nation and to each other. The soldier, he went on to say, understands what we as a nation too often forget that a wound inflicted upon a single member of our community is a wound inflicted upon us all. When one part of America hurts, we all hurt. And then one citizen suffers an injustice, we all suffer together. Loyalty to our nation demands loyalty to one another. 
excerpt. Love for America requires love for all its people. When we open our hearts to patriotism, the president went on to say there is no room for prejudice, no place for bigotry and no tolerance for hate. The young men and women we send to fight our wars abroad deserve to return to a country that is not at war with itself. We cannot remain a force for peace in the world if we are not at peace with each other. As we send our bravest to defeat our enemies overseas, and we will always win, let us find the courage to heal our divisions within. Let us make a a simple promise to the men and women we ask to fight in our name that when they return home from battle, they will find a country that has renewed the sacred bonds of love and loyalty that unite us together as one. Again, the president speaking before outlining his new strategy in Afghanistan. Now, shortly, we're going to talk with Jim Phillips about that strategy. Um, but the uh, the president was attempting to um, appease those who uh, have opposed the uh, statements made on several occasions following Charlottesville and hoping to shift attention to uh, this announcement and the new strategy in the Middle East. Well, presently, the president is holding a campaign style rally in Arizona. Uh, he uh, went to Arizona to visit America's southern border. A, a trip to the border has now been squashed, but he held uh, and is holding a campaign style rally the day after he announced an increase in military presence in Afghanistan. Well, he uh, today uh, visited the uh, in Arizona. Uh, this is the first since becoming president on the campaign trail. It was in Arizona that Trump gave what he called a detailed policy address on immigration issues. Um, Trump is uh, set to hold a campaign style event this evening. It should have started uh, at um, any moment. Well, it should start in any minute if it hasn't uh, already. In the state, he won by four percentage points in the 2016 presidential election. The state, situated along the nation's southernmost border, was the stage for some of Trump's more memorable addresses on immigration during that election. This will be Trump's eighth political rally since becoming president and the first in the West. His uh, 2020 re-election uh, campaign pays for the uh, uh, the organizes uh, the organized events um, that are campaign style rallies. Uh, Trump, who has uh, had a volatile relationship with both GOP Arizona senators, teased a big announcement ahead of the rally, and he could use the platform to castigate either Senator John McCain or Senator Jeff Flake. Republican strategist Michael Noble told The Hill ahead of the event. Now, that's speculation, but given Trump's history, it's entirely possible. It's plausible speculation. On Twitter, uh, the president praised Dr. Kelly Ward, Flake's controversial Senate challenger, Ward challenged McCain last year. Flake will not attend the rally, the Tucson uh, News Now reported. Well, earlier in the day, the president met with uh, Marine Corps base in Yuma, Arizona, along with the U.S. Mex- along rather the U.S. Mexico border. There, he uh, renewed his vow to build a wall to highlight his tougher immigration uh, policies. Governor Doug Ducey, uh, the Republican out of Arizona, is expected to greet uh, and did greet the president when he arrived in Arizona. However, he will not attend the rally as uh, it's going to be focusing on uh, security and uh, working with law enforcement during an actual event, the Arizona Republic reported. Richard Harara, an Arizona State University associate professor of political science, told the newspaper that the governor's decision to meet Trump but not attend the rally could show the the balance he's trying to... uh, uh, to take with Republican voters who support the controversial president and those who do not. 
There are multiple anti-Trump demonstrations that are planned throughout the day across uh, Phoenix, and the the largest is expected at the rally the president is holding at this time. The concern isn't the people entering the rally, it's the exit and potential clashes that occur at that time, although the governor and others in the area have assured uh, the media that they are prepared for whatever may happen and they do not anticipate a violent clash. This is the largest, um, or rather the largest uh, protests are expected to be protest Trump downtown Phoenix and the white supremacy will not be pardoned demonstration. Apparently those are or those are two different events held at the same time. Trump has suggested that he could pardon embattled ex-sheriff Joe Arpaio, uh, the strong supporter of the president who was convicted of criminal contempt for defying a judge's order to cease traffic patrols that targeted immigrants. Trump told Fox News earlier this month that he is seriously considering a pardon for him. The Arpaio is 85 because he has um, done a lot in the fight against illegal immigration. Arpaio said Monday that he will not attend the rally. Well, Trump will deliver remarks at the Phoenix Convention Center downtown at approximately seven local time, uh, which is any time now. It can be viewed um, online if you're interested in what the president uh, has to say. But we'll uh, certainly follow uh, that in uh, uh, in the studio here. Up next, we're going to talk with Jim Phillips. He's a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs, uh, talking about the president's announcement yesterday on Afghanistan. So what's next? We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the president last night announced that he is shifting gears in Afghanistan. He, uh, uh, after months of speculation and delay, has sided with the expert advice of his military and national security team on the way forward to the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. Well, here to talk with us about that is Jim Phillips, the senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Georgine. First of all, let me just uh, ask you to share your general impression of the president's speech last night. Well, I think it was really two different speeches. There was an introductory part uh, in in which the president uh, kind of lauded the armed forces for coming together as a team and citing, you know, the uh, importance of good relations between team members, which I think many people saw as uh, a, a, a statement about what was happening at Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he went on to talk about uh, Afghanistan uh, and announcing his policy of what he called principled realism in dealing with this long-running conflict. Now, that reference had to do with uh, statements made during his campaign and early in his administration as far as his uh, approach uh, to Afghanistan and our continued engagement there. What he was uh, was suggesting was that he had made the decision against his own instinct to side with the expert advice of the military and his national security advisors. Yeah, and I think uh, part of it was being realistic about what would happen in Afghanistan if the U.S. just picked up and went home as he had advocated as a candidate. And we saw what happened in Iraq when the Obama administration tried that. Uh, And that's one reason uh, President Obama abandoned his uh, initial plans to withdraw totally from Afghanistan by the end of 2014. So I I was glad to see that the president... uh, was uh, much more realistic about Afghanistan and the stake, the U.S. Uh, national security stake in uh, uh, 
keeping uh, al-Qaeda and the Taliban from moving back into that country. Among the things that he said, some were familiar. We'd heard it uh, mentioned by previous administrations, both Bush and Obama. He uh, emphasized that he wanted to have a laser-like focus on counterterrorism. But another thing that he emphasized was jettisoning the the nation-building that we had heard about in the past. How important was that to the United States successfully moving forward in its strategy in Afghanistan? Well, I think, unfortunately, uh, U.S. goals in Afghanistan were, for many years, uh, overly idealistic. Uh, There was a sense we were going to bring democracy to this country, and we were going to help educate the girls that had been deprived of education by the Taliban. We built a lot of schools uh, at great cost, which the Taliban then came in and burned in isolated areas. Uh, so I think this was a step back from um, the the goal of making Afghanistan a 51st state, so to speak, uh, and a more uh, a an understanding that you know Afghanistan has a long way to go become before it becomes a stable democracy, uh, and that in the meantime the U.S. should put a higher priority on counterterrorism than on uh, building it up into uh, a Western-style nation. Mm -hmm. He also made the point that um, the United States' role would continue to be helping the Afghans defeat the Taliban insurgency themselves rather than our doing it for them. And he made reference to the rules of engagement that were imposed under the Obama administration uh, that made uh, warfighting more difficult for the military that was there. Yeah, I think... uh, He's reversing the the many political constraints that the Obama White House put on the Pentagon in Afghanistan. Uh, It had, at one point, uh, Vice President uh, Biden even declared the Taliban was no longer an enemy, and the U.S. Hmm. stopped uh, airstrikes against the Taliban unless they were on the verge of overwhelming an Afghan army position. And I think that was crazy, and that uh, helped uh, the Taliban uh, to some extent make a comeback, but there was other factors. But uh, also, uh, under uh, President Obama, uh, U.S. military advisors were kept uh, pretty far from the fighting. And it's true that the Afghan army does probably more than 90% of the fighting inside Afghanistan, uh, but it could fight a lot better if it had advisors uh, closer to the front and with smaller units. I think right now advisors are only with, at the core level, and I think the administration is uh, planning to move them down to at least the brigade and maybe the battalion level. One of the uh, other things that the president emphasized last night in his address uh, regarding Afghanistan was that he intended to pressure Pakistan uh, and its support for certain elements of the Taliban. That seems like a, a crucial uh, element, but how likely is it that the United States will have sufficient leverage, um, a resource, to do that effectively? Well, I think this is one of the biggest changes in the strategy, mm-hmm. putting a much higher priority on pressuring Pakistan, because the problem is 
the Taliban really can't be defeated as long as they can know they can retreat across the border and regroup and rearm in the Pakistani sanctuaries. Uh, so this is a key part. Uh, the U.S. has a, a little more leverage on Pakistan now because we don't have so many troops in Afghanistan. We don't need, uh, uh, we're not absolutely dependent on Pakistan for logistical support. We can move things through Central Asia now. So that may free up the administration to follow through on some of its threats, uh, not only to possibly cut foreign aid, but to maybe deprive Pakistan of its status as a non-NATO ally. Uh, and ultimately, we could uh, even uh, declare that the Pakistani government is a state sponsor of terrorism and, and apply sanctions, although I don't think it would come to that. Yeah, yeah. One of the president, one of the things the president said was this strategy would ensure America achieves an honorable and enduring outcome worthy of the tremendous sacrifices that have been made in Afghanistan. What is the end game? Did he make that clear? What is the exit strategy? Uh, I don't believe he really talked uh, much about an end game, uh, of, apart from saying that U.S. troops were going to be fighting to win, uh, and you know, not just. Uh, not to lose, uh, but uh, ultimately, the end game I would see would be to see uh, the Afghan security services gradually become strong enough so that they can do almost all the fighting themselves, and, and the U.S. could step back into a training and perhaps air support mission, uh, and ultimately, I mean, ideally, the, the situation would look like uh, uh, South Korea today, where there are, although not as many U.S. troops, uh, where the troops are there, but they're not taking casualties in active fighting. Um, uh, one of the uh, points that the, the, the president made is that we are there for national security alone, and I suppose that dictates uh, how long we're there and, and the rules of engagement and, and so on. Um, but this emphasis on national security alone, it seems to me, will make it easier for U.S. military to achieve the objective. And ultimately, at some point, whether that's five years from now or 20 years from now, to know when we have um, either reached the goal or we are maintaining an acceptable level uh, for the security of this nation and for Afghanistan. Yes, I, I would agree with that. I think uh, the he also said that uh, this isn't a blank check, and that was kind of a warning to the Afghans that, you know, if the situation changes, if if they're not able to ramp up their own efforts and their own defense, then the U.S. is not going to st uh, step up its efforts. Yeah. Well, it will uh, be interesting to see. We don't know what the troop uh, numbers are going to be. We've been hearing 4,000 floated around, but we uh, should have something uh, more concrete in the in the days ahead. Are you optimistic that this approach will, in fact, be a better approach for the uh, United States' longest war? I think it's definitely a better approach than the, the previous administration, uh, which basically had had given up. But I think it's going to take uh, many years uh, and maybe more than a decade for this approach to really uh, produce uh, significant results. Well, we'll have to be patient. I appreciate so much your joining us once again. Always appreciate your input. Well, thank you, Georgine. Again, Jim Phillips, a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, every believer who's followed Jesus for any length of time knows what spiritual fatigue feels like. It's exhaustion, temptation, stress, anger, disappointment, a dryness, just being done. It might be a season. It might be the end. When you're in the middle of it, it's awfully hard to tell. Well, the question we face is whether continuing to obey God to be faithful is worth it. Is rest coming? Is restoration coming? My next guest, Ron Moore, has pastored for over 25 years. And in that time, he's been both experienced, or rather, he has both experienced spiritual exhaustion and helped others through it. He weaves those experiences into the pages of his new book, along with the accounts of biblical characters, to show that spiritual fatigue is normal, that it can be processed through, and that there is hope through it all. There is hope for the weary, there is hope for the fallen, and there's hope for the alone. Ronald Moore serves as senior pastor of the Bible Chapel, a multi-site church with 4,000 people meeting at four campuses throughout the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. Before joining Back to the Bible, his uh, teaching was heard every weekday on a national program called The Journey. He earned his master's in theology and doctor of ministry degree at Dallas Theological Seminary. He also holds a master's degree in education from Texas A&M and has written several books, including Journey Through the Bible, Journey Through the Psalms, Journey Through the Gospels, and Ignite. Today he joins us to talk about Worn Out by Obedience, Recovering from Spiritual Fatigue. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This is kind of a tough uh, subject to talk about because I think few of us wants to admit that we have ever experienced this level of fatigue or that it somehow is consistent with a life of faith. I mean, after all, if we're being obedient, shouldn't there be sufficient uh, energy to do what we're being called upon to do? Put this into context for those of us who have been worn out um, but have a hard time reconciling um, that idea with what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, you're right. You know, um, being worn out by obedience, that, that title seems a bit uh, contradictory. I mean, o- obedience to Christ is kind of is the believer's heartbeat. So, you know, one wonders how uh, doing the very thing uh, that God has called us to do and what, and what brings us really such satisfaction and enjoyment, that, you know, obeying Christ, how does that wear us out? But I think as you look at um, believers in Scripture and then uh, believers in uh, in real life today, uh, you see that sometimes uh, going through different uh, periods of life, we all have we all have um, a temptation that kind of dogs us. It seems like every time we round the corner, there's that temptation that is staring us right in the face, and um, and we have to make that decision: Are we going to obey? Are we going to give in? Uh, there are circumstances in life that just that wear us down. There's illness that comes. And, uh, you know, often uh, a person who uh, begins a, um, a time of illness, there's, there's a- almost a, a spiritual uh, a high. They're, they, they are depending on Christ. They're, I've seen this so many times. They're, they're, they're depending on Christ, and, and, and they're really uh, feeling His presence, and they're moving along. And then, you know, through the chemo treatment, through the radiation, through the surgeries, as it lingers on, there, there's a there's a discouragement that comes, and then sometimes uh, I think in service, you know, people people are serving, they're working hard, they're they're they're, they're using their gifts for the Lord, 
and then um, we, we get tired. Uh, we get we get worn down by uh, by serving. Uh, it's not a character flaw. It's not a condition reserved for the you know immature or weak Christian. It it hits us all, and we see it throughout Scripture. Mm. Now, can that be useful to God? Is it part of His design for us? Is it, what do we make of this uh, this fatigue, the spiritual fatigue that we are often prone to? Well, that's a great question, and I think one of the things that I try to get at in this book is to 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 keep from getting to the point where spiritual fatigue becomes a real danger to us. Um, all of us are going to be worn down at some point. All of us are going to uh, feel uh, stalled in our walk with Christ. All of us need a break, but sometimes we don't know when to take that break, or we don't take that break. Uh, the basis for the book is uh, David. David, of course, he's a young man. Uh, the prophet Samuel comes and anoints him as, as king. I, I can just picture Samuel whispering in David's ear, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And right after that, uh, David kills Goliath. He is able to uh, win great victories uh, and on the battlefield, the young maidens are singing songs about him, and uh, then he wakes up one day. I mean, having great success as spiritual high, and then he wakes up one day to see Saul throwing a spear at his head, and he has to run for his life. And he runs for the next ten years. I, just think about it—a decade of running from Saul. And uh, a lot of psalms are written uh, during that time where David uh, talks about his discouragement. Um, he, he talks about, uh, you know, um, um, the enemy is going to catch up with him. Uh, the enemy is going to kill him. Uh, sometimes uh, he, he's talking about God being his refuge, and so there's great uh, encouragement there. But after two times of obedience, uh, he had the chance to kill Saul, and he didn't. Um, uh, Saul, it says in Scripture, and in, in, uh, it says Saul went back to the palace. David kept on the running. And First Samuel twenty-seven, David kind of says, "I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted." He said, he thought first, first Scripture. David thought to himself, "That's always a telltale sign when we use self counsel. We have a chapter mm. in the book about mm-hmm. self counsel." And then he thought to himself, "One of these days, Saul's going to kill me." The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the enemy. And David, uh, for 16 months, lives in this land of Ziklag. And there he lives a life of lies and cover-up. And, and that's where you don't want to be. You don't want to be in Ziklag. If you're there, you can get out, but you don't want to go there. So um, I think um, you know the purpose of this book is to keep people out of Ziklag. If you get there, um, if you find yourself there, here's how you get out. Mm. You write about the three stages of the Christian life, growing in Christ, being uh, drawing close to Him, and being Christ-centered. And you describe uh, um, how spiritual fatigue or exhaustion exhibits itself in each of these stages. Tell us a bit about the stages and how we can find ourselves experiencing uh, spiritual fatigue in the midst of each of the three. Yeah, so there's some great studies out uh, regarding these stages, and one, as you say, is growing in Christ. That's uh, that's when you uh, are either just becoming a Christian or getting serious about your Christian faith. You know, there are a lot of uh, people, maybe a lot of listeners, who they've been a Christian for a while, but something happened in their life. Maybe it was a, uh, maybe they had a child. I I I I think a lot of times when people, uh, a husband and wife, they have the first child, they say, "Man, I I got to get serious about my walk with Christ." And so something spurs it on. So they they're 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 growing in Christ. And then the second stage is 
um, you, you become there's an intimacy with Christ. Uh, there's it's more than it's more than just I'm a Christian. Now there's an understanding of this relationship. It's starting to it's starting to really uh, apply the. Uh, the personal relationship we have with Christ in our life. And then Christ-centered is that mature believer uh, who is walking with Christ. Um, you know, they're in the Word on a regular basis. Uh, they're applying God's Word on a regular basis. And studies show that, that regardless of what stage you're in, uh, about 90% of Christians, regardless of what stage, um, talk about this time when they are spiritually stalled. Uh, they feel like they've kind of hit a wall for whatever reason. So again, it's not just for this, it's not something uh, that's, that's a character flaw or for the spiritually uh, immature or weak. Uh, all of us, regardless of the stage we're in, uh, we can, we can, we can become spiritually stalled. And it, while it's normal and while it's natural, it's also dangerous, and so we need to deal with it. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Ron Moore. He's a senior pastor and author. His latest book, Worn Out by Obedience, Recovering from Spiritual Fatigue. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 48 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with uh, Dr. Ron Moore, senior pastor and author of Worn Out by Obedience, Recovering from Spiritual Fatigue. Now, give us some examples, as you do in the book from Scripture, of people who uh, fought and overcame soul weariness, which is so familiar to far too many of us. Yeah, so, um, you know, you have Moses. Uh, Moses is leading the children of Israel out of, out of uh, Egypt. Um, he, he, there's one miracle after another, and, and then the people start to grumble. And uh, because of that, of course, uh, they're in their disbelief 40 years in, in the wilderness and, and in the desert. And, and, and Moses, there's, a, there's times when he says, God, why, why did you give these people to me? Uh, what did I do to deserve this? Uh, and uh, Moses, at the end, you know, becomes so um, frustrated uh, that he disobeys God. He actually disobeys, and, and he's kept from leading the people into the promised land. And so you have this great uh, uh, man of God, and there's no one like Moses uh, in, the old, in the Old Testament, and, um, and he becomes weary. He becomes tired uh, of leading uh, the, God's people. You have Elijah, uh, who, uh, you know, the great story... Prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel. He uh, calls down fire from heaven, and and God rains down fire. He kills the prophets of Baal. This great, great, great spiritual victory. And then right after that, right after that, um, he hears that Jezebel is after him. And uh, you remember the story. He runs for his life, and he and he kind of hides uh, under a tree and asks God to you know do away with him. And I think often. You know, right after these spiritual victories, it's David in uh, in uh, Psalm in First uh, uh, Samuel twenty seven. Right after these two spiritual victories, he had an opportunity. He's, run, he's again, he's been running for ten years. He's been running for eight and a half years at this time. Uh, he had two opportunities to kill Saul. He could have put Saul to death. Uh, his soldiers wanted him to put Saul to death, and he says, "I can't do that. I can't kill God's anointed." He walks away. He shows Saul the evidence that he could have killed him. Saul says, oh, David, you're a better man than me. Scripture always says Saul went back to the palace. David kept uh, on the run. And that's when he said, you know, I've had it. I've had it. I'm, I'm exhausted. Uh, Saul's going to kill me one of these days. The best thing I can do is to escape to land of the enemy. So we have, we have uh, uh, examples throughout Scripture of, of, of mighty men of God, a man after God's own heart like David, who becomes worn out by obedience. 
How can we find, and one of the challenges we face today is the the expectations that are heaped upon us. Sometimes they're face-to-face by people we know very well, but there are also uh, sort of subtle forms of expectations that we uh, we encounter. How can believers find the right mindset and response in view of this flood of expectations that oftentimes uh, results in our feeling that heaviness and fatigue? Yeah, that's a great question, Georgine. You know, um, I think uh, it's the... the, the the weight of expectation has always uh, been on believers, and I think the Christian community can sometimes do a disservice. We do a disservice mm-hmm. to each other because we place these expectations on each other. You know, we read a book about, or, or we hear a program about how we should, um, you know, how I, I, I always remember as a young father uh, listening to a program about these guys who did devotions uh, with their kids, and they got the whole neighborhood involved, and they were building a cross in their garage as they were, you know, explaining the atonement and everything. And I, I, we, we couldn't even keep our four kids, you know, around a table for a 15 minute, you know, Bible story. And, and you begin to think, man, I'm a failure at this. Every, everyone else is ahead of the game except me. Uh, think about so, how social media has just exacerbated that. So now you go on to Facebook and you have this perfect dinner, you know, plated, uh, beautifully, uh, that a person has, has fixed and taken a picture of and they're serving it to their family. You have, uh, people on vacation. You have, you have, you have the, the best of life presented on Facebook. And, uh, you know, you're struggling at home with, with three kids. Uh, you're trying to keep your, uh, you know, you're trying to get through the day with your job. And it looks like everyone else is ahead. And there's this, there's this, um, expectation, maybe even unspoken, but this expectation of this is the standard. If you don't meet this standard, you're not real, you're not, you know, you're not doing what God wants you to do. I think the remedy to that is uh, we have a whole chapter in the book on, uh, one of my favorite chapters actually, spiritual identity, mm-hmm. understanding who we are in Christ. And we use the acronym SAFE with two S's. <clears throat> in Christ, I'm significant. In Christ, I'm secure. In Christ, I'm accepted. In Christ, I'm forgiven. In Christ, I'm empowered. My significance is not in a job or comparing myself with other people, or it shouldn't be. My significance is in is in Jesus Christ alone. I don't have to have a Facebook post that paints me, you know, as a super mom or super dad. My significance is in Christ. My security is in Christ. Everything else could go away. I still have that security in Christ. I'm accepted, I'm his child, and will for always be, I'm forgiven. Uh, and God says he takes our sins and he hides them behind his back. He throws them in the depths of the sea. He remembers our sin no more. He separates him as far as the east is from the west. And I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit. I have everything I need to do what God's called me to do through his Holy Spirit. So I think when we understand our spiritual identity, uh, then we can become, we, we can start to battle these, these expectations that other people put on us. Mm. You, um, uh, write about the fact that when we're, uh, weary and uncared for, there are dangers associated with that. And you gave the example of David, who began to to uh, seek his own counsel when his soul was exhausted. Talk a bit about um, the the dangers of being uncared for or isolating ourselves, which is typical of what we we do when we're struggling. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, first of all, I think when we uh, uh, several danger signs. One is. I, I lose the desire to read God's word and to pray. I lose. I, I, I get to the point. I get. I get to the point of spiritual fatigue, where um, I lose the desire 
to, to be in God's Word on a regular basis and to communicate with Him on a regular basis. I think another a danger sign is, you know, there, I, I'm not moved by the experiences that used to give me spiritual goosebumps. You know, there are some songs that, that we sing in, in congregational worship and our song you may hear on the radio, a song you have on your, um, on your, uh, on your phone that you're listening to and on your iTunes and, and, and you play it and there's a, there's a line in there or there's a part in there that just that moves you. Well, when we're going through spiritual fatigue, it's kind of like a flat line. It doesn't move us anymore. So that's a danger sign. Uh, I think of another another one is a person who gets tired of waiting on God. Maybe they desire a child to come, and and to this point, God hasn't blessed them with the child. Maybe they're they desire a relationship. Man, I talked to so many singles, and uh, you know they they're praying that God's going to bring that right person into their life and 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 he doesn't you know it's not on their timing and and they're not getting any younger and pretty soon they start to cut corners they start to go places they shouldn't go to look for a relationship they start to get involved with those who are not believers or who are not as serious as they are in the relationship with Christ they just get tired of so I take when I get tired of God I start taking matters in my own hand the other thing is I if I'm serving and you know, I, I begin to feel like I'm the only one who who really cares about this ministry. If I'm maybe I'm serving in a finance ministry team, and I start, you know, I'm the only one at the church that really cares about money. No one else really cares about um, finances at our church. Or I'm serving in children's ministry, and I'm getting tired. No one else really cares about the children of our church, the future of our church. And I've seen this happen to pastors. I I, I remember hearing from a, a well-known pastor not long ago, and he said, you know, I felt like I'm the only one who really cares that that people are in the in the, in the seats on a Sunday morning, and. We can all get to that point. We just get we get worn down. We get we get we're just running on empty, and those are the danger signs that that we we have. The cynicism creeps in. Um, we feel like we're we're the only one really working for the Lord. Uh, you know, we we really got to uh, take um, uh, take a take a step back during those times, and and understand that that those danger signs are the very thing that led David into Ziklag. We we don't want to go to Ziklag. No, we do not. You refer to what you call the gift of crisis. Uh, it sounds like a contradiction because we don't think of a crisis as being something uh, that has any value to us at all. But explain how the very difficulty we might be enduring uh, can be used as all things are being worked together for our good in order to make us more like Christ and draw us nearer to him. So David and, and his men were in Ziklag for, for 16 months. <clears throat> They're actually getting ready to go. Uh, with the Philistines to do battle against the Israelites, and uh, there were five Philistine kings. Four of the kings said, "We don't, we don't want David and his men to go. We're afraid they're going to turn on us in the battle." And so they send David back home. David and his men head back to Ziklag, and and I just imagine right as they crest the hill, they see the smoke coming up from the city. And when they get there, they realize that their wives and their children are gone. The Amalekites have come in and uh, and taken their wives and children. Their city's been burned to the ground. And these are hardened. These are hardened men. These are warriors. These guys have seen everything on the battlefield. The scripture says they they wept until they had no strength left to weep. And then it says they turned on David, and they were thinking of putting him to death. And right then and there, it says that David uh, found strength in the Lord his God. For Samuel uh, chapter 30, David found strength in the Lord his God. So it was in that crisis uh, where he lost, he lost everything. He lost his family, but David finally turned back 
to God and found his strength there. And we see that a lot, don't we? We see that uh, when people get so tied up in their job and, and they're they're moving 100 miles an hour, sometimes in the wrong direction. And then, you know, they go in the office one day and, and their job uh, has disappeared. It's no longer there. It's no longer needed. Uh, they've been they've been um, they've been let go. And that that crisis, as difficult as that is, causes them, causes us to find strength in the Lord or God, because we don't have any place else uh, to turn. And so it's it's those times where God gets our attention. Uh, he he turns us back to himself, and then we start realizing what's important. That's what David did. He ends up the grace of recovery. There's a chapter on that where he goes and uh, and 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 they recover uh, the women and the, the wives and the children. And you know, just this day, the the strength, the grace of strength that David has to have to to be able to uh, to lead his men, uh, you know, to, to to the Amalekites and take uh, take back the the wives and children. And it's an amazing part right after that. It's really interesting, uh, Georgine. Right after uh, uh, that situation where David gets his wives, gets the wives and the, and the children back, the Philistines are doing battle against the Israelites. That's the battle where Saul and Jonathan are both killed, and David becomes king of Israel after that. It's been 10 years. He's been on the run for 10 years. But right after that, uh, those, the, the, the grace of crisis, David became the king of Israel. Hmm. Well, the book is titled Worn Out by Obedience, Recovering from Spiritual Fatigue. Pastor Moore, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And by the way, the book is uh, published by Moody. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back seven minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Uh, later, we're going to uh, hear a conversation I had earlier in the day with Jim Phillips. He's a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs. We're going to talk about the president's announcement last night uh, of the, uh, the new Afghanistan uh, strategy, uh, which will probably stretch into years rather than uh, merely months. Anyway, we're going to talk about uh, that strategy in comparison and, and contrasting that with what previous administrations uh, had to say as well. In National Review, Victor Davis uh, Hansen wrote an interesting piece on our war against memory. Uh, and I wanted to share portions of that with you because I think it, it says what we need to consider as we're rushing forward, or at least some are rushing forward, making judgments about what uh, should go and what should remain. And he puts it in a, a broader historical context. Uh, he's again writing for uh, National Review, uh, Victor Davis Hansen, and he writes, Romans uh, emperors were often a, a bad lot, but usually confirmed as such only in retrospect. Monsters such as Nero of the first century A.D., Julio-Claudian uh, dynasty, or the later uh, psychopaths um, uh, that followed were flattered uh, by toadies when alive, only to be despised the moment they dropped. Well, after unhinged emperors were finally killed off, the sycophant Senate often proclaimed a, um, a condemnation of memory. Prior commemoration was wiped away, thereby robbing the posthumous ogre of, an, uh, of any legacy. 
and hence any existence for eternity, or at least time. In more practical matters, there followed a um, concurment uh, of this erasing of memory. Specifically, moralists either destroyed or rounded up and put away all statutory and inscriptions concerning the bad, dead emperor. In the case of particularly striking or expensive artistic pieces, they erased the emperor's name or his face and some physical characteristics from the artwork. Impressive marble torsos were sometimes uh, recut to accommodate a more acceptable successor. Um, Think uh, of something like the head's own only of the general on Stone Mountain blasted off and replaced by a new carved profile of John Brown or Nate, uh, Nat Turner. Well, without Leon Trotsky's organizational and tactical genius, uh, Vladimir Lenin might never have consolidated power among squabbling anti-Tsarist factions. Yet after the triumph of Stalin, de-Trotskyanization demanded that every word, every photo, and every memory of the ostracized Trotsky was to be obliterated. That nightmarish process fueled allegorical themes in George Orwell's fictional Animal Farm in 1984. How many times has St. Petersburg changed its name, reflecting each generation's love or hate or indifference to Tsarist Russia or neighboring Germany? Is the city always to remain St. Petersburg, or will it once again be anti-German Petrograd, as it was after the horrific First World War, or perhaps it will again be communist Leningrad during a giddy age of the new man as dictated by the morality and the politics of each new generation resenting its past. Is a society that condemns its past every 50 years one to be emulated? Abolition of memory is easy when the revisionists enjoy the high moral ground and the condemned are evil incarnate. But more often, killing the dead is not as easy a matter of dragon uh, slaying as with Hitler or Stalin. Confederate General Joe Johnston was not General Stonewall Jackson, and after the war, General John Mosby was not General Wade Hampton, just as Ludwig Beck was not uh, Joachim Piper. What about the morally ambiguous persecution of sinners, such as the current effort in California to condemn the memory of Father Junipero Serra and to erase his uh, eponymous boulevards to punish his supposedly illiberal treatment of Native Americans in the early missions some 250 years ago? California Bay Area zealots are careful to target uh, Sarah, but not Leland Stanford, who left a more detailed record of his own 19th century anti-non-white prejudices, but whose university brand no progressive student of Stanford would dare to erase, because doing so would endanger his own studied trajectory to the good life. We forget that there are other catalysts that, than moral outrage that calibrate the targets of this erasure of memory. Again, in the case of the current abolition of Confederate icons, re-energized by the Black Lives Matter movement and the general repulsion over the vile murders by cowardly racist Dylan Roof, are all Confederate statues equally deserving of, of condemnation? Does the statue, for example, of Confederate General James Longstreet deserve defacing? He was a conflicted officer of the Confederacy, a critic of Robert E. Lee's, uh, later a Unionist friend of Ulysses S. Grant, an enemy of the Lost Causers and a leader of African-American militias and enforcing Reconstruction edicts against white nationalists. Is Longstreet the moral equivalent of General Nathan Bedford Forrest? Um, who was the psychopath villain of Fort Pillow, a near illiterate antebellum uh, slave trading millionaire and the first head of the original Ku Klux Klan. 
Were the 60 to 70 percent of the Confederate population in most secessionist states who did not own slaves complicit in the economics of slavery? Did they have good uh, options to leave their ancestral homes when the war started to escape the strain of perpetuating slavery? Do such questions even matter to the new arbiters of ethics who recently defiled the so-called peace monument in an Atlanta park, a depiction of a fallen Confederate everyman, his uh, trigger hand still uh, stilled rather by an angel? How did those of obsessed with the past, know so little of history. He goes on with examples uh, that are similar. He writes, how about progressive icon Joan Baez? Should the 60s folk singer seek forgiveness for from us for reviving her career in the early 1970s with a big money-making hit, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down? Her version of the band's uh, sympathetic ode to the tragedy of the defeated Confederacy written over a century after the Civil War. If a monument is to be wiped away, then surely a popular song must go too. Are there gradations of moral ambiguity, or do Middlebury and Berkeley students or Antifa rioters in their infinite wisdom have a monopoly on calibrating virtue and defining uh, defining it as 100% bad or 100% good? Who of the uh, present uh, gets to decide whom of the past we must erase, and where does the cleansing of memory stop? Defacing Mount Rushmore of its slave owners, renaming the double whammy uh, Washington Lee University? Are we to erase mention of the heavens for their August 21st eclipse that unfairly bypassed most of the nation's black population, as the recent issue of Atlantic Magazine is now lamenting? And yes, that's a true story. Revolutions are not always sober or judicious. We might agree that the public sphere is no place for horrific commemoration of Roger Taney, the author of the Dred Scott decision. But statue removal will not be limited to the likes of Roger B. Taney. Uh, when empowered activists can cite chapter and verse of the, the racist thing once uttered by Abraham Lincoln, whose uh, bust was just disfigured in Chicago, and when this, the statue destroyers feel that they gain power daily because they are morally superior. The logical trajectory of tearing down the statue of a Confederate soldier will soon lead to the renaming of Yale, the erasing of Washington and Jefferson from our currency, and the de-Trotskyanization of every mention of Planned Parenthood's icon, Margaret Sanger, the eugenicist whose racist views on abortion anticipated those of current liberal Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who said, frankly, I had thought that at the time of Roe, the time Roe was decided, there was concern about population growth and particularly growth in populations that we don't want to have too many of, end quote. 20th century, now 21st century Supreme Court justice. At what point, uh, he goes on, uh, will those who uh, went ballistic over President Trump's clumsy on hand and the other hand criticism of both the abhorrent racists who marched in Charlottesville and the unhinged anarchists who sought to violently stop them uh, demand that Princeton University erase all mention of their beloved Woodrow Wilson, an unapologetic racist. Wilson, as an emblematic and typical early progressive, thought human nature could progress by scientific devotion to eugenics, and he believed that blacks were intimately inferior. Wilson also, remember, was in a position of power, and owing to his uh, his racism, he ensured that integration of the U.S. Army would needlessly have to wait three decades. Do any of the protesters realize that a chief tenet of early progressivism was eugenics, the politically correct liberal orthodoxy of its time? More in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock is the time. Uh, later, I want to share a conversation I had earlier in the day with Jim Phillips about the president's announcement on the new Afghan uh, plan for the U.S. military. Sharing from Victor Davis Hansen's uh, column on our war against memory and uh, mob rule deciding what uh, constitutes um, acceptable heroes and, and what does not. Uh, he goes on to write, and I just want to share a little more of this. He writes that, did President Obama swiftly condemn the forces that led the shooter to select his victims for execution? After Major Nadal Malik Hassan murdered 13 fellow soldiers in cold blood, screaming out Alawa Akbar as he shot, did both sides, Obama, really have to warn America that we don't know all the answers yet, and I would caution against jumping to conclusions until we have all the facts? Uh, which echoes, of course, what uh, our current president said about the situation in Charlottesville. Um, and uh, did it take six years before he discovered the catalyst when finally calling the murderers a uh, terrorist attack? Did Obama have to dismiss the Islamist anti-Semitic terrorist slaughter of targeted Jews in a kosher market in Paris with a callous and flippant quip uh, that the murderers had killed a bunch of folks in a deli in Paris? Were there demonstrations over that moral equivalence? And was it inevitable that the anti-Semitic homophobe and provocateur with, po- with uh, past blood on his hands for inciting riot and arson, the Reverend Arv- uh, Reverend Al Sharpton, would advocate yanking public sponsorship of the Jefferson Memorial? He who is with sin now casts the first stone. We are in an age of melodrama, not tragedy, in which we who are living in a leisured and affluent age pass judgment on prior ages because they lacked our own enlightenment and sophisticated views of humanity, as if we lucky few were born fully ethically developed from the head of Zeus. Then skipping down, he writes, there is a need for an abolition of memory in the case of Hitler and Stalin or here in America, perhaps even of Nathan Bedford Forrest. But when we wipe away history at a whim, why in 2017 and not, say, 2015 or 2008, we'd better make sure that our targets are uniquely and melodramatically evil rather than tragically misguided. And before we get out our ropes and sandblasters, we should be certain that we are clearly um, the moral superiors of those we condemn to oblivion. Be careful, 21st century man. Far more hypocritical generations to come may find our own present moral certitude, late-term and genocidally um, driven abortion, the rise of artificial intelligence in place of human decision-making, the harvesting and selling of aborted fetal organs, ethnic and tribal chauvinism, uh, euthanasia, racially segregated dorms and safe spaces, as immoral as we find the sins of our own predecessors. For the last decade, we were lectured that the arc of history always bends toward our own perceptions of moral justice. More likely, human advancement tends to be circular and should not be confused with technological progress. Just as often history is ethically circular, no Roman province produced anyone quite like a modern Hitler. Attila's body count uh, could not match Stalin's. In the classical in the classical Athens of 420 BC, a far greater percentage of the population could read than in Ottoman Athens in AD 1600. The average undergraduate in 1950 probably left college knowing a lot more than his 2017 counterpart does. The monopolies of Google, Facebook, and Amazon are far more insidious than that of Stanford uh, Standard Oil. Even if our masters of the universe seem more hip in their black turtlenecks than John D. Rockefeller did in his starched collar. Money-wise, Bernie Madoff outdid James Fisk and Jay Gold. 
the strangest paradox in the current epidemic of uh, the erasure of memory is that our moral censors believe in ethical absolutism and claim enough superior virtue to apply it clumsily across the ages without a clue that they fall short of their own moral pretensions and that one day their own icons are as likely to be stoned as the icons of others are now apt to be torn down by black masks wearing Avengers. A final paradox about killing the dead. Two millennia after Roman autocrats' uh, destruction of statues and armed with the creepy 20th century model of fascists and communists destroying uh, the past, we of a supposedly enlightened democracy cannot even rewrite history by democratic means. Local, state, and federal commissions, recommendations, referenda, or majority votes of elected representatives. More often, as moral cowards, we either rely on the mob or some sort of executive order enforced only in the dead of night. It's an interesting uh, column. Uh, you can find it on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page in its entirety. And again, Victor Davis Hansen writing on our war against memory and uh, how clumsily we apply uh, our modern day thinking that oftentimes is uninformed or misinformed. Uh, to uh, those who came before us. Well, angry at what uh, they say is widespread discrimination leveled against their ranks, a group of police officers in New York City coined a new term, blue racism, as a way to draw attention to the mistreatment they say they face at the hands of the public. And while a string of police-related killings over the last few years and the rise of prominence of groups like Black Lives Matter have shed light on the abuse some minorities face at the hands of law enforcement, The New York Police Department Sergeant's Benevolent Association say they, too, have become victims. Cops are being shot at and killed just because they are cops, said uh, Ed Mullins, the SBA's president and a 36-year NYPD veteran. Uh, Police are being made uh, to be the bad guys. And I'm not saying that there there aren't a few bad apples, but the majority of us are trying to help the people and do our jobs. What he's arguing is the same standard that's being rejected by the majority that Uh, You cannot judge people as members of groups and suggest that the actions of an individual applied to an entire group is being applied to police officers. The SBA on Sunday released a video on blue racism in which the group describes how police officers, black, white, Asian, and otherwise, have been systematically targeted for discrimination and how many people can't look past the color of their uniforms. The roughly four-minute-long video um, intersperses slots of um, shots rather of law enforcement officers getting ready for patrol and helping elderly citizens with scenes from recent and often times violent demonstrations in response to police-related shootings. Blue racism from Sargent's Benevolent Association can be seen on Vimeo. The average person doesn't see those things that make uh, make me human, the video narrator says. They don't even label it, us as, uh, label, uh, as being African-American, Latino, Asian, Caucasian, and so on. They tend to see an even broader stereotype, though an even more racist lens, or through one. Um, why they uh, When they look at me, they see blue, the narrator adds. The video goes on to say the more, uh, more than 700,000 police officers across the country have become a minority as the strange form of racism continues in the United States. The video also shows various news clips of officers killed over the last few years while on duty from the massacres last summer in Dallas and Baton Rouge and two NYPD patrolmen killed execution style in Brooklyn most recently. Well, two uh, top Navy leaders are refusing to rule out the possibility that a collision between a U.S. destroyer and an oil tanker in the Pacific may not have been um, an accident, but may in fact have been intentional. That's according to the Chief of Naval Operations Administration, John Richardson. The incident, which occurred early Monday morning in Southeast Asian waters, resulted in 10 American sailors lost at sea and significant damage to the USS John S. McCain, 
um, the destroyer attached to the Navy 7th Fleet. Search and rescue operations by the U.S., Indonesian, Singaporean, and uh, Malayan uh, navies remained underway Monday night for the missing sailors, and four other U.S. sailors were reportedly evacuated from the USS McCain to medical facilities in Singapore. The Pentagon initiated a two-day pause in all Navy operations worldwide beginning today, or rather Monday, as a result of the incident. Admiral Richardson, who briefed reporters at the Pentagon, described the action as an operational pause in the near term to allow for an overall review of the operational fundamentals at the unit and team level. He also said the Sea Service was an Initiating two major fleet-wide inquiries into the incident, which is the second um, mid-sea collision in two months between American warships attached to the 7th Fleet and commercial vessels traversing international waters in the Pacific. Earlier this month, Navy leaders fired the uh, capital of the USS Fitzgerald and disciplined several of the ship's senior officers after the warship collided with a Philippine-flagged shipping vessel near the Japanese coast in June. The USS McCain, named for uh, Senator John McCain's father and grandfather, had been en route to Singapore after carrying out a freedom of navigation operations in the hotly contested South China Sea when it collided with the uh, tanker uh, on Monday. The collision tore a 600-foot hole in the U.S. warship's hull. It flooded the ship's machine and communication rooms as well as berthing rooms for crew, according to the Associated Press. Admiral Richardson, meanwhile, said that the Navy investigation could not rule out the uh, that the incident may have been intentional. Right now, there is no indication of that, uh, but we are taking Taking a look at all of it, he went on to say he noted that the Navy investigators had also explored the possibility of foul play involving the USS Fitzgerald accident, but eventually ruled that out. Navy leaders had suspected the navigation system aboard a pair of patrol boats operating in the Straits of Hormuz last January had been uh, compromised, leading the crew aboard um, those vessels to stray into Iranian waters. That investigation continues, and the remains of some of the 10 soldiers uh, that had been missing have been recovered. 30 minutes after 5 o'clock, we're going to uh, take a break. When we come back, we'll talk with Jim Phillips about the president's uh, speech on the U.S.-Afghan strategy moving forward. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the president last night announced that he is shifting gears in Afghanistan. He, uh, uh, after months of speculation and delay, has sided with the expert advice of his military and national security team on the way forward to the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. Well, here to talk with us about that is Jim Phillips. He's Senior Research Fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Georgie. First of all, let me just uh, ask you to share your general impression of the president's speech last night. Well, I think it was really two different speeches. There was an introductory part uh, in in which the president uh, kind of lauded the armed forces for coming together as a team and citing, you know, the uh, importance of good relations between team members, which I think many people saw as uh, a a statement about what was happening at Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he went on to talk about uh, Afghanistan uh, and announcing his policy of what he called principled realism in dealing with this long-running conflict. Now, that reference had to do with uh, statements made during his campaign and early in his administration as far as his uh, approach uh, to Afghanistan and our continued engagement there. 
what he was uh, was suggesting was that he had made the decision against his own instinct to side with the expert advice of the military and his national security advisors. Yeah, and I think uh, part of it was being realistic about what would happen in Afghanistan if the U.S. just picked up and went home as he had advocated as a candidate. And we saw what happened in Iraq when the Obama administration tried that. Uh, and that's one reason uh, President Obama abandoned his uh, initial plans to withdraw totally from Afghanistan by the end of 2014. So I, I was glad to see that the president uh, was uh, much more realistic about Afghanistan and the stake, the U.S. Uh, national security stake in uh, uh, keeping uh, al-Qaeda and the Taliban from moving back into that country. Uh, Among the things that he said, some were familiar. We'd heard it uh, mentioned by previous administrations, both Bush and Obama. He uh, emphasized that he wanted to have a laser-like focus on counterterrorism. But another thing that he emphasized was jettisoning the the nation building uh, that we had heard about in the past. How important was that to the United States successfully moving forward in its strategy in Afghanistan? Well, I think, unfortunately, uh, U.S. goals in Afghanistan were, for many years, uh, overly idealistic. Uh, there was a sense we were going to bring democracy to this country, and we were going to uh, help educate the girls that had been deprived of education by the Taliban. We built a lot of schools uh, at great cost, which the Taliban then came in and burned in isolated areas. Uh, so I think this was a step back from um, the the goal of making Afghanistan a 51st state, so to speak, uh, and are more uh, a an understanding that you know Afghanistan has a long way to go become before it becomes a stable democracy. Uh, and that in the meantime, the U.S. should put a higher priority on counterterrorism than on uh, building it up into uh, a Western-style nation. Mm -hmm. He also made the point that um, the United States' role would continue to be helping the Afghans defeat the Taliban insurgency themselves rather than our doing it for them. And he made reference to the rules of engagement that were imposed under the Obama administration uh, that made uh, war fighting more difficult for the military that was there. Yeah, I think... uh, He's reversing the the many political constraints that the Obama White House put on the Pentagon in Afghanistan. Uh, it had at one point uh, Vice President uh, Biden even declared the Taliban was no longer an enemy, and the U.S. Hmm. stopped uh, airstrikes against the Taliban unless they were on the verge of overwhelming an Afghan army position. And I think that was crazy, and that. Uh, helped uh, the Taliban uh, to some extent make a comeback, but there was other factors. But uh, also, uh, under uh, President Obama, uh, U.S. military advisors were kept uh, pretty far from the fighting. And it's true that the Afghan army does probably more than 90% of the fighting inside Afghanistan, uh, but it could fight a lot better if it had advisors uh, closer to the front and with smaller units. I think right now advisors are only with, at the core level, 
and I think the administration is uh, planning to move them down to at least the brigade and maybe the battalion level. One of the uh, other things that the president emphasized last night in his address uh, regarding Afghanistan was that he intended to pressure Pakistan uh, and its support for certain elements of the Taliban. That seems like a, a crucial uh, element, but how likely is it that the United States will have sufficient leverage, um, a resource to do that effectively? Well, I think this is one of the biggest changes in the strategy, mm-hmm. putting a much higher priority on pressuring Pakistan, because the problem is the Taliban really can't be defeated as long as they can know they can retreat across the border and regroup and rearm in the Pakistani sanctuaries. Uh, so this is a key part. Uh, the U.S. has a, a little more leverage on Pakistan now because we don't have so many troops in Afghanistan. We don't need, uh, uh, we're not absolutely dependent on Pakistan for logistical support. We can move things through Central Asia now. So that may free up the administration to follow through on some of its threats, uh, not only to possibly cut foreign aid, but to maybe deprive Pakistan of its status as a non-NATO ally. Uh, and ultimately, we could uh, even uh, declare that the Pakistani government is a state sponsor of terrorism and, and apply sanctions, although I don't think it would come to that. Yeah, yeah. One of the president one of the things the president said was this strategy would ensure America achieves an honorable and enduring outcome worthy of the tremendous sacrifices that have been made in Afghanistan. What is the end game? Did he make that clear? What is the exit strategy? Uh I don't believe he really talked uh, much about an end game uh, of, apart from saying that US troops were going to be fighting to win uh and you know not just uh, not to lose, uh, but uh, ultimately, the end game I would see would be to see uh, the Afghan security services gradually become strong enough so that they can do almost all the fighting themselves, and, and the U.S. could step back into a training and perhaps air support mission, uh, and ultimately. I mean, ideally, the the situation would look like uh, uh, South Korea today, where there are, although not as many U.S. troops, uh, where the troops are there, but they're not taking casualties in active fighting. Um, uh, one of the uh, points that the, the the president made is that we are there for national security alone, and I suppose that dictates uh, how long we're there and and the rules of engagement and and so on. Um, but this emphasis on national security alone, it seems to me, will make it easier for U.S. military to achieve the objective. And ultimately, at some point, whether that's five years from now or 20 years from now, to know when we have um, either reached the goal or we are maintaining an acceptable level uh, for the security of this nation and for Afghanistan. Yes, I, I would agree with that. I think uh, the uh, he also said that uh, this isn't a blank check, and that was kind of a warning to the Afghans that, you know, if the situation changes, if if they're not able to ramp up their own efforts and their own defense, then the U.S. is not going to st- uh, step up its efforts. Yeah. Well, it will uh, be interesting to see. We don't know what the troop uh, numbers are going to be. We've been hearing 4,000 uh, floated around, but we uh, should have something 
uh, more concrete in the in the days ahead. Are you optimistic that this approach will, in fact, be a better approach for the uh, United States' longest war? I think it's definitely a better approach than the, the previous administration, uh, which basically had, had given up. But I think it's going to take uh, many years uh, and maybe more than a decade for this approach to really uh, produce uh, significant results. Well, we'll have to be patient. I appreciate uh, so much you're joining us once again. Always appreciate your uh, input. Well, thank you, Georgine. Again, Jim Phillips, a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. This is our final segment. Well, I know the big eclipse was a big deal yesterday and all the days and weeks and months leading up to it. It was kind of anticlimactic today to just come into work. Nothing happened. I walked down the hall, in through the front door, down to my office, sat in my chair, and that was about it. Did my work like I normally do. But one thing I thought was worth bringing up in in the wake of the eclipse of 2017, uh, the spectacular total solar eclipse was viewed by millions throughout the state of Oregon. And oh, what views we had. And I certainly appreciated the images that we're seeing on Facebook that people have been posting. That's been a real thrill. And of course, NASA making uh, images available uh, throughout the whole of the uh, the eclipse of 2017, not just here on the West Coast. But during past eclipses, people who have looked at the sun without proper glasses experienced lifelong eye damage that resulted in impaired vision. You may have seen uh, pictures of the president who briefly looked heavenward without his glasses on. Of course, a lot of people have take, made hay out of, uh, out of that. But I think a lot of us may have glanced up remembering, oh, yes, that's right, we need to put our glasses on. Well, Pacific University says solar um, uh, reentry. I think it's reentropy, um, damage to the eyes, uh, retinal tissue can occur after viewing the sun unfiltered for just a few seconds, even if the sun is almost but not completely eclipsed, as it was in most of Oregon on Monday. And they say that oftentimes there's uh, no immediate symptoms or pain associated with uh, retinal damage because retinas don't have pain receptors. That's a quote from Dr. Lorne Yudikovich. Um, changes to vision or light sensitivity may not be noticeable until the following day or longer. So if you looked up and you are concerned, did I do damage or not? Uh, He says that um, if your eyes feel any discomfort, like pain or sensitivity to light, in the following days, the days following the eclipse, you should get them checked out. Uh, He says that uh, not all damage is permanent, but it's important to get treatment as soon as possible. I'm not sure what that treatment might be, but if you're concerned about that, um, they're suggesting that you do see an ophthalmologist. I think you'd need to see an ophthalmologist rather than an optometrist, but call the office and they can tell you what uh, what you need to do. I have to admit, I was wearing my glasses dutifully, looking up, and there was an occasion when I just kind of looked over them and realized, that's right, you're not supposed to do that. And the vision uh, the, the between the naked eye and what you saw through those glasses was pretty staggering, so you weren't tempted to do it again because you could actually see what was happening uh, when the glasses were on, whereas you could only see sort of a blur in the heavens that was very bright without them. So anyway, that's what you should do if you are concerned that you may have sustained some damage during the eclipse. The eclipse, rather. Well, on Wednesday, we're going to talk with Marion Jordan Ellis. Uh, Marion is the author of Stand, Rising Up Against Darkness, Temptation, and Persecution. Now, you'll notice some of that is... Uh, challenge from within. Some of it is a challenge from without. We're going to take a look at what standing looks like 
uh, when the uh, the challenge or opposition comes from the outside or if we are struggling with our own demons, if you will. On Thursday, we're going to talk with Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel, of course, is a best-selling author, and there was a movie made uh, last year based on his best-selling book, The Case for Christ. Well, that movie came out last year. It's now available on DVD. We're going to talk about the transition from the theater to the DVD, and if you uh, didn't have the opportunity to go and see it on the big screen, I know I didn't, even though I... Uh, appreciate the book and uh, would like to have seen it. It's now out on DVD. And so we're going to talk about uh, that and the impact that the movie has had uh, across the country Uh, in making the case for Christ. It is an apologetic that is uh, uh, his life story, how he began as a very staunch opponent of Christianity. In fact, he would go so far as to identify himself as an atheist. He was an intellectual and a journalist. And it's interesting to um, to follow the stories of individuals who are unlikely followers of Christ, who become utterly convinced when they take a serious uh, look at what um, what the claims of Christ are, what the scriptures say, and what evidence there is that demands uh, a verdict, as another author would put it. So we're going to talk with Lee Strobel about his own story, about the movie and uh, the book, which has now been re-released and updated as well. That's coming up on Thursday. And then on Friday, which is um, our day to lighten up just a bit, assuming there's no breaking news. And by the way, if there is breaking news, we will break in. And we're going to lighten up and have a bit of fun. We'll take a look at some of the more humorous things that are a part of the culture we find ourselves in in the 21st century. Also, I uh, want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your eclipse experience, um, uh, the, the build up to it, the uh, the hype about traffic and uh, how this was going to be one of the most miserable seasons in our state's history because so many people were going to be pouring in. Um, didn't quite pan out to the the, the degree that they had warned, but it uh, it was quite a an adventure for the state. And uh, hope you had the opportunity to enjoy what went on. Well, today we spent some time talking about the president's um, new plan for Afghanistan. He has decided that his own intuition, his his preference in that region of the world and the United States engagement there um, was insufficient, and he has relied upon the counsel of. Uh, the experts in the military, and that's what the United States is going to do. Uh, my nephew has uh, just recently been deployed to uh, Bahrain, and uh, in, in addition to going to Bahrain, he's now on a ship, and he's been deployed for a, a period of time there. Um, I thought about the naval vessel, and we talked about it earlier in the program, uh, that was rammed by a um, uh, another large cargo ship, and uh, some of the U.S. Navy uh, personnel are suggesting that the collision may have been intentional. We don't know at this point what the truth is. But I think about not just the military in general. I think about my nephew in particular. And I know for many of you, you're thinking about individuals you know who are serving, those who have served. Some of you have uh, served in the military, and all of this is very personal to you. It's not just a general announcement that some number is going to make its way from this country to Afghanistan. You are painfully aware, uh, aware rather, of the cost, the time and treasure that it costs for those individuals who are serving this country for the sake of our security to leave their home and the comfort of of this country to serve in Afghanistan. And even though they're not directly engaged in uh, military combat, uh, we know that they are in harm's way by virtue of their proximity to what the Afghans are doing to support their own security. Uh, so I just want to encourage all of us to be mindful of the sacrifices that are being made on our behalf, to be supportive of the family that's left behind, men and women 
um, whose uh, husbands and wives, sons and daughters, um, fathers and mothers uh, have left the comfort of home to serve in Afghanistan. Let's support them here at home. If you are aware of, of their presence in your community, send them a note, offer to make dinner, do whatever you can to let them know that you recognize that they too are making a sacrifice for the sake of our country. And remember to pray for those who are serving um, in harm's way in Afghanistan and for that matter, all around the world. Uh, it's easy for us to go about our business, to be blissfully unaware that there are people who um, who serve this country and aren't enjoying the same kinds of freedoms that we uh, do here because they've uh, made it a priority to make sure that we can um, live essentially uh, conflict-free, aside from the conflicts, of course, that we uh, have against one another. And anyway, then let's pray and let's uh, serve them well and be prepared to welcome them home. And Lord willing, they will one day return home. Well, I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. Uh, James Blend is producing from afar, and Justin Mansfield is also uh, engineering a portion of today's program. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And once again, I want to remind you that tomorrow we'll talk with Mary and Jordan Ellis. The book is Stand, Rising Up Against Darkness, Temptation, and Persecution. I hope you'll join us. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.